domestic violence is something that escalates. You know, the second, third, fourth time might be something that's more deadly. And so when you have a gun in the situation, the, the chances that someone may die just increases very much. Right now, there's 17 majority black districts in the state uh, that come out of Detroit. The commission has drawn zero. That's a huge problem. It's unacceptable and it's something that we've got to fix. I'm a suicide survivor. It's hard when I think of the permanent solution to the temporary problems that I had at the time. And I think that's what a lot of service members go through. You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A bipartisan package of bills has been introduced in the state legislature that would ban people convicted of domestic violence from owning firearms for eight years. State Senator Stephanie Chang is one of the sponsors, and she appeared with Guy Gordon on the Paul W. Smith Show. Uh, We know that actually across the country, more and more states have adapted legislation to really protect domestic violence survivors. Um, There's so much research out there that shows that, um, you know, domestic violence is something that escalates. So something that might be uh, more minor in the beginning, you know, the second, third, fourth time, might be something that's more deadly. And so when you have a gun in the situation, the the chances that someone may die just increases very much. And so uh, by taking the gun out of the situation, uh, we know that we can actually save lives. Um, and so it's something that I think we really need to do uh, to protect the safety of survivors. Okay, do we know, I, I know we know that in theory, and it makes well, well we know it, for it fact, makes sense. There's, there's, do, 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 there is okay. research. Yeah, yeah. There's research okay. that shows. I mean, because there is federal. You know, there is a federal law in the books, um, and we know that in states as well that have uh, passed this type of legislation that we've seen um, the results. So, so you know, it, is it going to prevent all domestic violence? No, of course not. Um, but it can prevent people from being killed um, because we know that yeah. having a gun in this situation makes it much more deadly. Well, because as, as Ann and I were talking when we were trying to connect with you, it, it's we also know this, that if an abuser wants to continue abusing, wants to intimidate, wants to threaten, they don't really give a darn whether they're breaking the law or not. They're going to either get a gun illegally, and if they want to kill their, their uh, estranged spouse, they may still do it. So I was just concerned whether or not it's really that effective, given the fact that abusers will continue to abuse. Well, I mean, I think the thing is that we know, again, like I mentioned, domestic violence is a, is a, is a an issue that, um, you know, we have to attack from all angles. Um, and this is one tool. Like, do I think that this is going to solve all problems? No, of course not. But mm-hmm. it is important that we save lives. And we know um, from the data that we will. Um, okay. So I think that's why you see bipartisan support, why you see domestic violence groups, um, you know, supporting this legislation. That's why you see prosecutors like Kim Worthy. Um, you know, we've worked with her for four or five years on this bill because sure. we know that local prosecutors want to have these tools uh, to be able to prosecute, to be able to uh, hold people accountable, and also to um, also really make sure that we are, uh, you know, protecting pr- protecting people um, in situations where their intimate partner, um, you know, things could turn deadly. This one of the things that I heard from a listener yesterday was asking whether this is the best avenue, and he asked the question: Why not just make domestic violence, and domestic abuse, and domestic assault a felony? Then they will fall under the existing law. 
So there are, are various levels of misdemeanor of uh, domestic violence offenses. Um, so, you know, there are definitely felony, misdeme- uh, felony domestic violence charges that can be filed. Um, what, what we're getting at here is the fact that misdemeanor domestic violence is something that people can sometimes maybe plead down to right. or might be something that might be, um, you know, the first instance or the second instance where it might be a little bit more minor. Um, but we know that uh, future occurrences, things could escalate. Um, because sometimes that's what happens in a situation. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, that's why we really want to take seriously those misdemeanor domestic violence uh, situations. We want to really make sure that we're, um, you know, looking at those perpetrators and saying, you know, are are these people that really should have a gun in their their possession um, knowing what their background is with with domestic violence? A group of 13 randomly selected citizens tasked with redrawing voting districts released 10 possible maps this week ahead of next week's public hearings on the proposed changes. One of the major criticisms of the newly drawn maps is that it diminishes the voice of black voters in some majority black districts. Chris Renwick breaks it down with state senator Adam Ollier. You see these maps uh, over the last decade, they were drawn in such a way where experts say that these uh, districts in the city of Detroit were were tight within the city of Detroit, meaning that uh, if you're a representative from the city of Detroit, chances are you are a completely encompassing. Well, now, according to some of these new maps, that's not the case. And now Democratic lawmakers, uh, despite even the possibility of perhaps more Democrats winning seats in the state legislature, saying uh, this is no good. Uh, Senator Adam Ollier is the uh, state senator of Michigan's 2nd District, and he joins us this afternoon on the Guy Gordon Show. Senator, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. You got it. So t- talk to me first. Uh, when when you came across these, uh, I guess, preliminary uh, maps that were uh, drawn from this 13-member committee, uh, what caught your eye first? Well, right now there are 17 majority black districts in the state uh, that come out of Detroit. The commission has drawn zero. That's a huge problem. It's unacceptable and it's something that we've got to fix. Uh, now, you say that, that this needs to be done. Uh, because districts that are not majority black have, by and large, not elected majority black individuals. You said that yesterday. Um, it, it, what are you basing that off of? So right now, the, pop- the black population of Michigan is 14 percent. The black mm-hmm. population of the legislature is 12 percent. There are three members of the state legislature of the 148 members currently serving that are black, but not covering a majority black district. Senator Erica Geist, Representative Sarah Anthony, and Representative Felicia Brayback. There are lots of districts in the state that are 30 or 40 percent black, but that never elect black elected officials. And so as we talk about this space, it's critically important that the numbers add up. Yeah, no, I mean, I I certainly understand that. So I guess just so we can maybe, uh, you know, kind of dumb it down here. So for me, like if you look at some of these districts that are drawn and let's come up with a hypothetical and say that portions of Livonia uh, and portions of the city of Detroit uh, would be in one district now. And, And I think what some experts are saying is that. Uh, it's possible that Democrats could still win that seat, but uh, it, it's also possible that 
a, a majority of the voting base or a majority of the support could come from outside the city, therefore electing somebody outside the city, be it black, white, whatever. Um, but you wouldn't have the representation you wouldn't have from, you know, the, the, the people in the city of Detroit representing the people of Detroit. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so Detroit is the blackest city in the country. It's the blackest city in the state of Michigan. And all the communities that you're talking about are already represented by Democrats. They haven't drawn black Detroiters into any districts that are currently held by Republicans. They're just drawing districts that are already democratically held more Democrat. This isn't doing anything to help with the partisan fairness. This is just making it more difficult to elect black people. Raiders coach John Gruden resigned this week after a series of incriminating email surfaced that disparaged NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, the integration of female referees, and the drafting of the first openly gay player in league history, as well as poking fun at the size of NFLPA Executive Director DeMarie Smith's lips. The emails came to light as part of an investigation into sexual harassment claims against the Washington football team. WJR's Sean Belegian weighs in with Kevin Dietz. I think a lot of people, you know, when it first came out, it was like, will he survive this? But over the weekend, as more stuff uh, came out, including, you know, the derogatory term uh, for homosexuals and and the crude term used for a, a part of the female anatomy to explain his feelings for Roger Goodell, they were left with no choice to come to this conclusion. And, and you know, I, I don't want to read too much into it, but my guess is that uh, the owner of the Raiders, Mark Davis, said one of two things are going to happen. You resign or we fire you. And um, it, it sounds like uh, John Gruden decided to resign. It, it's interesting because, you know, he had had a massive and historic contract, a 10-year, $100 million deal uh, just four years ago, Kevin, and uh, it just uh, you, you shake your head that something like this happens. But uh, here we are talking about it. Well, the there was a lot of reaction early on. There was reaction uh, from some pretty big former NFL players. Uh, Gruden also worked uh, as a broadcaster uh, for for a long time, so he worked closely with a lot of people. Were were people supporting him in the beginning? Were people saying, "Look, this is this is a, a, a huge problem. Uh, this has to be addressed right now." Um, obviously, as the weekend unfolded, and more of these emails uh, came to light. The decision became clear. But how did it kind of play? out over the weekend well it was interesting there were a lot of guys that stepped up and and had positive things to say about uh john gruden not just current players but in particular you know hall of famer tim brown i mean the guy's a legend a heisman trophy winner from notre dame and he said i i never heard or saw anything that would make me think that way he even you know went as far as to saying you know the one thing that everybody pointed at uh what were the comments about d smith where where he said he had uh, quote, Michelin, Michelin lips. And uh, Tim Brown was quick to say, I heard him use the term rubber lips many times, and that was to explain somebody that was lying. So, you know, did it help that Tim Brown came out and said that? And other people said, yeah, he had used the term, quote, rubber lips to explain people that were lying. One will never tell because just more and more kept coming out and it got to the point where obviously something had to happen what what can you tell me about this washington football team investigation he wasn't with washington how how did this lead to these emails do you know well from the sounds of it it sounds like he was uh 
sharing emails with then President uh, Bruce Allen. He was the president of the football team of the Washington football team uh, from a period of time from 2011 to 2018. And the Washington football team, I, I think, as everybody knows, has had their fair share of issues, whether it be uh, their former name, the Redskins, or certainly the reports that that were just a plenty uh, about what a toxic atmosphere it was under owner Daniel Snyder. So they have been under the microscope of the National Football League for many years now. You know, reports of misogyny, uh, reports of, of, of just toxicity everywhere across uh, that franchise. So in the process of uh, taking a look at some of the workplace emails, these emails came up and over the course of seven years, these are emails that, you know, John Gruden had sent out, you know, and it's uh, really, it, it, it's, it's, there's so much in there, Kevin. It was, you know, um, saying that the league pressured uh, then St. Louis Ram coach Jeff Fisher to draft, quote, a queer. And, and of course, talking about Michael Sam, uh, who was drafted out of Missouri. So many things involved. And I have a feeling we're not going to hear the end of this either. I mean, we got a little bit uh, over the weekend. We got a lot bit more yesterday. I have a feeling more may be coming as well. Suicide rates among active duty members of the U.S. Army have shot up by 46% in the second quarter of 2021 compared to one year earlier. Ronnie Cyrus shares how depression and suicide has touched his life and how it drives him as both the vice president of the Michigan Heroes Museum and state of Michigan transition advisor with Chris Renwick. It is no secret, and there's a Pew Research study out there that says a non-commissioned officer in the Army, E5 through E9, which would be a sergeant through a sergeant major, has the most stressful job in the United States. And there's a lot of stressors that come with that, and I think the overwhelming um, layer upon layer of whether it be training, whether it be um, stress or suspense items, and the system's constantly changing and trying to become a more efficient uh, and stronger and more streamlined military has led to a lot of other issues. And that, that's just in my personal opinion, but, but I think it's sad. I think it's sad that we continue to talk about um, suicide awareness at the senior level. We spend a, a lot of time, even in the Michigan National Guard or, or the, the country, you know, the Army National Guard and Air National Guard and the reservists, uh, as well as active duty, we spend so much time talking about suicide awareness. But where are the preventive measures that are in there? And I think that's when a lot of soldiers at the ground level look and they say, you know what, where I understand that I'll get $100,000 death gratuity when I when I die or if I take my own life along with my $400,000 life insurance policy. It is actually called a death gratuity by the Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. And I think they're working on changing the verbiage, but it's a $100,000 payout if a service member takes their life, and that covers all their immediate bills and issues that the families may have. And when we talk about these things with soldiers and service members that are having issues, I've often wondered if it almost doesn't seem like a solution to somebody who may be struggling with their mental health. And, and I find that sad. I don't find it troubling. I find it sad. You've been in some tough times. You've been in, you know, the, the, some dark places, but, but you, you've somehow come out on the other side and, and, um, you know, turned what, what eventually, you know, or, or what could have been, um, you know, a really sad situation and you've turned it around to help others. Well, 
I was really blessed in 2017. And let's go back. It's something that I don't talk about that often, but having developed a relationship with um, Eric Hipple uh, from uh, Detroit mm-hmm. Lions quarterback from 1980 mm-hmm. to 1990 and his mental health struggles and, and what he preaches about mental health today, Eric is a suicide survivor. And it took me years um, after meeting him to admit that I had a problem back in about 2012, 2013, and I was going through some extreme stress and some life-changing things that had happened, and I decided that it was probably best if I wasn't here, and I'm a suicide survivor, and it's something that I don't talk about that often. I've just recently kind of admitted it, and it's, it's hard when I think of the permanent solution to the temporary problems that I had at the time. And I think that's what a lot of service members go through. They get so overwhelmed and so overstressed and the Mm -hmm. transitions that they make between the military life and trying to balance a civilian life and a marriage, you know, much like NFL players and much like uh, any professional sports athlete that a lot of our audience can relate to when service members, they go through so those similar transitions and, and, and it tears families apart. If you're not strong enough and don't have that base underneath you, it can destroy marriages, it can destroy relationships, it can destroy friendships and relationships you have with your kids. And it's a constant balancing of trying to do your duty and trying to be a good person. And it's it's a struggle that breaks my heart. I have witnessed 23 service members that I have served with since 2011 who have taken their own lives. And one of my best friends took his life uh, in March of 2019. We had been together the night before. And uh, it breaks my heart to think that he doesn't have a future. And mm-hmm. I want to tell every veteran out there that much like myself, I was I was really blessed. I, I made it through some of those stages. I was able to reach out and seek help because I was encouraged to, and I did. I went through some of the vet centers and, and counseling and what have you, and I talked to talk, talked about my feelings, just talked about what was going on with with in my heart, and I realized that the permanent solution for my temporary problem was not the way to go. And I began to look at things as opportunities and I tried my best. Nothing that I do in my career, whether it be with the NFL or whether it be with Michigan Heroes Museum, the Detroit Lions, is, uh, nothing I do is who I am. It's what I do. Yeah. And well, and, I, and, and Ronnie, and I, I, think, I think here, um, aside from the military needing to do more in terms of um, not only awareness, but prevention. I think that would be a big help here. But but what you have shown now, um, and, and look, I'm not patting you on the back. I, I think you do a lot of good. You know that. But but what I think you're showing people just by what you do here uh, is that that there is another side. There's a beautiful side. There's a there's oh a side I... uh, that that isn't that isn't the darkness. There's something good on the other side. And, and in the last 10 seconds here, I just wanted to. To, to thank you for not only your insight, but, um, you know, everything that you do for people here in the state is important. Well, life is not always beautiful, but it is a yeah. beautiful life. And as a veteran, as a service member, as a first responder, 
I need you in my life. I need you in my community. I need you in my tribe. And trust me, there are so many beautiful opportunities outside of the service. And once you get past some of those issues, you'd be surprised when the light opens up and the dawn breaks and you realize how many wonderful opportunities there are available for you out there. And take advantage of those. Don't look back. Refocus on what's in front of you, not behind you, and realize that there's so much to live for. And I need you. That'll do it for Podsui this week for full episodes or anything you might have missed go to thegreatvoice.com see you next time